Jones, Ian Harrison, Monique Henson, Ian Morrison, Thomas Gregg, and Prabhu Thiagaraj. The Jodcast, June 2017. Hello and welcome to a Jodcast. I'm George and joining me in the studio are Monique and Ian. Hello. Hello. Hi. One of the things I want to say before we get into the show is that I just want to reassure everybody that although we're located in Manchester and though although a lot of us live in Manchester City Centre, fortunately no one here at the Jodo Bank Centre for Astrophysics was affected by the bombing at the Manchester Arena or Victoria Station. I don't know if uh, Ian or Monique want to say anything uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, it was an incredibly sad and tragic thing to to have happened. Um, fortunately, nobody here was directly affected by it, but obviously, we've been in and around Manchester and seeing all of the tributes and things that have been going on and taking part in those. And there's been very good representation, and obviously, we're giving out our deepest sympathies to everybody, anybody who was listening who was affected. And I think even you know. You're saying you don't have to be directly affected by it to feel something in relation to it. And that's definitely something that we've seen around our department and around the city. So uh, if you are, then, you know, reach out to someone. So in the show this time, Prabhu and Tom will interview Thomas Torres about compact stars. And Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton will take a look at what's happening in the June night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Evans with this month's news. The Jodcast News. And in this edition, the supernova that wasn't, the search for fast radio bursts continues, and the amateur astronomers moving into radio astronomy. Have you ever wanted to sneeze, but it didn't happen? The whole body readies itself for the coming explosion. You make the ah, ah, ah sound, but then nothing. No sneeze. Just you with a surprised and disappointed look. Something similar has happened on a slightly different scale to N6946-BH1, a star in the fireworks galaxy. It's called that because there are lots of supernova associated with it. The life of stars is well understood. At the end of their lives, large stars with masses in excess of three solar masses swell in size to supermassive red giants when they switch from hydrogen to helium fusion. When their stocks of helium start to run out, they collapse. The bounce back from that collapse is a supernova, one of the most spectacular events that astronomers can witness. N6946-BH1 seem to be following the pattern. In 2009, astronomers from Ohio State University saw the star brightness increase. This, they thought, was a precursor to the star going supernova. But then the massive star failed to explode. In fact, it disappeared from view. The team from Ohio State, working alongside astronomers from the University of Oklahoma, searched for the star using the Hubble and Spritzer Space Telescopes. They failed to find any supernova or remnant. In fact, the star had become invisible in the visual band and was only 5,000 times as bright as the sun in infrared radiation. Initial theories were that the supernova had been obscured by dust ejected from the star, but this did not stand up to observations. Ohio State's Professor Christopher Kachanek's new theory is that supermassive stars simply failed to go on to supernova and instead collapsed to a black hole. He and his team suggest that N6946-BH1 formed a dense core surrounded by an envelope of gas, mostly hydrogen. This envelope extended out to a similar size as the orbit of Jupiter. Owing to its size, the envelope was only weakly gravitationally attached to the core. When the core collapsed, the shock wave that passed through the envelope was weak, certainly not up to the strength needed for a supernova. It is possible that there's an optimum size for a star to form a supernova. Too small like our sun, and the star forms a white dwarf. Too big, and the star's core collapses to form a black hole without triggering a supernova. As Scott Adams, one of the lead authors on the paper, indicates, 
10 to 30% of massive stars die as failed supernova. So there are fewer observed supernovas than should be occurring if all massive stars die that way. Further observation in the X-ray and possibly gravitational waves using the LIGO Observatory could give us more information on the deaths of these supermassive stars. Fast radio bursts have been causing a stir in the radio astronomy community over the last few years. Professor Duncan Lorimer, based at the West Virginia University, before then Manchester University, spent the summer of 2006 reviewing data from the Parkes Radio Observatory. He and his research student found a millisecond pulse recorded in 2001. Initially, it was thought that the pulse had a terrestrial origin, not unlike the signal that the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia discovered, only for it to be the microwave oven in the observatory cafeteria. Further examination of data uncovered more fast radio bursts, or FRBs. To date, 24 FRBs have been observed. That they did not seem to be confined to the galactic plane suggested that these had an extragalactic origin. If that's the case, then the source of these FRBs must be very powerful. The discovery of FRB 121102 in 2012 by multiple telescopes strongly suggests the source for that burst being a dwarf galaxy 3 billion light years from the Earth. This FRB also repeated, first after 50 hours, then sometimes later saw pulses just over 20 seconds apart. This raises questions over the source of these extremely powerful bursts of energy. With such a small set of data to work with, the causes of these FRBs has opened to multiple explanations, ranging from merging black holes to extraterrestrial civilizations. What is needed is a far greater data set. Some telescopes, such as BINGO, the Barron Acoustic Oscillation from Integrated Neutral Gas Observations Telescope, CHIME, the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, and the Chinese equivalent Tianlai, will spend a lot of time observing the sky at frequencies around 1 GHz. They will cover a large area of the sky, and so should pick up more examples of FRBs. As of now, Chime and Tianlai are both in their early stages of operation, and Bingo is still on the drawing boards. So what could be used in the meantime? Professor Mike Garrett, director of the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, suggests expanding the E-Merlin system. The E-Merlin system includes the two large dishes at Jodrell Bank, as well as five other dishes extending out to Cambridge. Professor Garrett suggests that adding extra dishes, including the large communication satellite dish at Goonhilly in Cornwall, would increase the capacity of E. Merlin to spot, and more importantly, to get precise locations for the sources. If the FRB is associated with galactic centres, then supermassive black holes could provide a mechanism. If they're associated with the edges of galaxies, then some mechanism associated with new stars could be the answer. Till we gather more data, all we can do is speculate on the source of these enigmatic bursts of radio noise. While many amateur astronomers are active in observing invisible light, there are far fewer observing at radio wavelengths. Amateurs, some working as part of Project Jove, have over the years been able to use basic receivers to pick up radio signals from Jupiter, which is a bright radio source in the sky. This is changing with the introduction of software-defined radios. These radios use computers to do all the heavy lifting in tuning and processing the signal. It was discovered that some inexpensive USB TV tuners contain chipsets that would allow them to be used at frequencies far outside the TV bands. The R820T chipset can receive radio frequencies continuously from 30 MHz up to 2 GHz. While these have many terrestrial uses, such as monitoring ADSB signals from commercial aircraft and picking up weather images from NOAA satellites, it's the area of radio astronomy that offers opportunities to amateur astronomers. Mario Canistra, on the Hackster.io website, shows how to build an inexpensive updated version of Project Jove's Jupiter receiver, using an SDR, an upconverter to take the 20 MHz signal from Jupiter up above the 30 MHz lower limit for the SDR, a low-noise amplifier, and a Raspberry Pi computer. For less than £100, you can record radio signals from Jupiter.
The more adventurous amateurs are picking up signals from much farther afield. The R820T SDR works well at 1420 MHz, which is where you can find the hydrogen emission line. A satellite dish with a home-built antenna feed built around a tin can is sufficient to pick up the hydrogen emission for the Milky Way, along with a red and blue Doppler-shifted line from the spiral arms. Other sources are more of a challenge. An SDR is not very sensitive, so a target with a large signal-to-noise ratio is preferred. Steve Olney, administrator of the Neutron Star Group, has reported the successful detection of pulsars by astronomers using SDRs. This is not for the faint-hearted. Hannes Fasching, based in Austria, has detected pulsars using a 7.3-metre dish, while Mario Natalie, based in Italy, uses a 5-metre dish. If those dishes are a bit too big for your back garden, then Steve Olney has finally been able to make his own confirmed pulsar detection using a 42-element circularly polarised Yagi antenna tuned for 436 MHz and an RTL-SDR. A 42-element Yagi is a long antenna, and his setup has the antenna pointing vertically upwards. His target is the Vela pulsar, which happens to pass almost directly overhead at his location. The signal from the pulsar has to be recorded over several hours. It's then subjected to a process called epoch folding, in which short time intervals are superimposed over each other. As the pulsar is extremely regular, if the correct period is chosen, then the repeated signal should emerge. This technique runs the risk of identifying terrestrial sources with a regular period, so Steve has to observe the sky when the pulsar is not in view. The lack of a signal does suggest a successful detection in this case. The fact that relatively inexpensive equipment is able to make valid observations of radio sources suggests that this growing field of amateur astronomy will be making important contributions in the future. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, Prabhu and Tom interview Thomas Torres about compact stars. I'm Prabhu Tyagraj. Today's broadcast, we are interviewing Thomas Torres from University of Bonn and Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy, Germany. Welcome, Thomas Torres. Thank you. And I have with me Thomas Scragg from the University of Manchester as well. Thomas Torres, would you like to tell us what made you do this special visit to the University of Manchester today? Well, I was invited to give a colloquium by René Bridgong, who is a colleague of mine and I've known for quite a long time by now. And this was a very nice opportunity for me because despite being in the Pulsar field for many years, working on neutron stars, I've never been to, to Manchester and visiting this institute. What is your research interest and uh, what, what are you working in the University of Bonn? So my research uh, interests are fairly broad. I'm interested in, mainly in compact objects, that is white dwarfs, neutron stars and black holes. So the end products of uh, stars at the end of their life, they make a transition from a normal non-degenerate star into a so-called compact object. I also work on uh, supernova explosions and I work on binary evolution, that is mass transfer and other interactions between stars. I work on gravitational waves and I do quite some um, Monte Carlo simulations and population synthesis as well, which is to mimic a a synthetic population of, of binary stars in our galaxy. So you said compact stars. How compact? Stars, I thought they will be big. Well, compact stars are, as the name suggests, uh, very compact. So at the end stage of the evolution of a normal star, there are three possibilities. So either a star can transform itself into a so-called white dwarf. So this happens if the star has an initial mass which is less than about eight times the mass of our sun. Then it 
becomes a very uh, compact object, which has roughly the size of the Earth, which is several hundred times the size that it had at the end of its life when it's a giant star. It's, it's very large, but then it sheds the, the outer envelope, and the remaining part becomes a very uh, compact object called a white dwarf, which has a mass density of uh, a few hundred kilograms per cubic centimeter in average. So it's about the size of the Earth, and yet the mass is, is some fraction, say 70% of the mass of the Sun, so it's, it's rather compact. Now, if the original star is more massive than, say, eight times the mass of our Sun, say between eight and maybe 25 times the mass of our Sun, then the end of the evolution of the star is, is much more violent. It happens that a supernova explosion will occur, and the remnant of the supernova explosion is the so-called neutron star, which is made principally of neutrons, and in these objects, the, the central density is enormously large. We're talking about some 10 to the 15 grams per cubic centimeter or some billion tons per cubic centimeter. So this is a very dense object. And the third possibility for the final stage of the star is that it can become a black hole if the initial mass of the star is even more massive than roughly uh, 25 times the mass of our sun. So is there a way to... Look at them using any telescope, and how will we know that these compact objects exist out there in the space? This is a very good question. Because these objects are very compact, they're difficult to see because their luminosities are usually small. So usually the luminosity of a star or a stellar object scales with the radius squared. But because these compact objects are so small, like a white dwarf being the size of the Earth, a neutron star only having a radius of about 10 kilometers, then the luminosities from these objects are fairly small, so they're not very easy to see. But many of these compact objects are found in a binary system with another star, and because these compact objects are so compact, they're often able to retrieve material from the companion star such that they can basically eat their companion star, and when this material falls down the deep gravitational well towards this compact object, then there will be emission of typically X-rays. Wow. And that that means we can see these compact objects in so-called X-ray binaries. Oh, so if they don't retrieve any material, we have no means to see them. We can only see these compact objects if they're not in a binary, if they're very uh, young. So when a white dwarf or neutron star is just being produced, it's, it's usually rather hot. So therefore, the luminosity is also fairly large because... The luminosity scales with the temperature to the power of four, the surface temperature. So when these compact objects come right off out of the oven of their progenitor star, so to speak, they're very hot, but they cool off rapidly. But if you're lucky and you catch this compact object right after its, its formation within the first, say, few million years after its formation, it will still be hot and you can see it even if it's not in a binary system. But the older it gets, the cooler it becomes and Therefore, these older compact objects you can only see in, in, in binary systems. Unless you are looking at a so-called uh, radio pulsar. So a radio pulsar is a specific uh, subpopulation of neutron stars, which are fairly rapidly spinning and they possess strong magnetic fields. And therefore, these uh, spinning neutron stars produce a beam of radio waves. And if this beam of radio emission is pointing towards the line of sight to the Earth, then we can see these radio pulses, and therefore we can also see isolated neutron stars if they are radio pulsars. 
So you mentioned they are binary objects, which means two objects going one around the other. That's right. So under what circumstances these kind of objects go around each other? Well, this is actually an interesting question, and this is actually the core of my, my research uh, field, or my research interest is indeed to understand how you can make two such, in some cases you have two compact objects in a binary system orbiting one another. So how on earth is it possible that two neutron stars, for example, end up in a very tight system orbiting one another? The thing is, you to produce a pair of binary neutron stars, you have to start off from the beginning with two fairly massive stars, and these stars have to interact with one another in order to end up in a very tight combination. So you have mass transfer going on back and forth, and you have two supernova explosions producing the two neutron stars. So there are many obstacles along the way in the evolutionary path from the zero-age main sequence when these massive stars are being born until they finally settle as two neutron stars. So this is indeed a very fascinating cosmic journey that these binary stars are taking. But we have to keep in mind that if you look into the night sky and look at these very massive stars that do produce neutron stars, then almost all of these massive stars are actually a member of a binary system. So binarity is a natural phenomenon. That's very, very interesting. So uh, I'm tempted to ask this question. Uh, is two is a stable number or it can go to three, four? Do we have objects with more than two? We do actually know of triple systems and quadruple systems and even higher multiple uh, systems. But when the number of stars in the system uh, becomes larger than or equal to three, then many of these systems will not be stable in, in the long term because there are some more or less chaotic interactions. Uh, this is the well-known three-body interaction problem. And it's difficult to keep these uh, systems uh, bound. But it can often happen, for instance, that you can have a quadruple system which is made up of two binary systems, each containing two stars. So you have two binary systems which are then orbiting their common center of, of mass, making a total of, of four stars. And this can also be a stable configuration, yeah. of course. So usually when we say they are binary or a triple systems, do they have to be at certain distance or they could be, the, the radius could be f quite far? Well, binary stars can principally have any orbital separation. The two stars can be as close to one another that they basically touch and you have mass transfer between the two stars. The separation can also be so wide that they don't have any interaction whatsoever besides from gravity, so the orbital period may be thousands of years. Whereas if we talk about triple systems, then they order in a so-called uh, hierarchical pattern, so there are some limits to how you can make a configuration of, of three stars. So for instance, you can imagine that you have a system with, with three stars, where you have, uh, for instance, a, a massive star more or less in the, in, the, in the center of this system, and then you can have a binary system orbiting this, this massive star. But then there are some restrictions to the separation between the two stars in a binary system and then the orbital semi-major axis in the, in the triple system, so to speak, so between the massive star and the binary. So there are some ratios which must be fulfilled in order not to have a, a system that becomes critically unstable in the long term. I'm tempted to think another uh, very interesting connection with our solar system, sun with several planets around. This is also a multi-body system. 
right. seems to be running stable for a long, long time. Yes. So, so how how a table system can become unstable and uh, multi-body systems like solar system exists? Well, it it depends on the hierarchical structure. It's a little outside of my research field, but I think the way one can understand this is that in the solar system you have one central star, and then you have all the planets orbiting the sun. So in in our case, we have eight planets orbiting the sun. They're all orbiting around at the center of the math of the solar systems, which is coincident with the location more or less of the sun, because the planets are not very massive compared to the sun. But in a system with three stars, for instance, you can also have the situation you have, say, a massive central star, and you, then you have two less massive stars orbiting the central star, more or less like, like two planets would do. But you can also have a configuration where you have that the two stars are orbiting each other, while at the same time, the center of mass of that binary is orbiting a central star. And in such configurations, the ratio between the separation between the two stars in a binary and the distance to the central star becomes quite important for stability. Thomas, you have a question there, please. Yeah, I was going to say, it just sounds like a similar situation with the Earth and the Moon orbiting a common center of gravity, and then that center of gravity is orbiting the Sun. That's kind of illustration of the way that system would work? Yes, you, you can say that. So you can imagine if you have the distance between the Earth and the Moon, if that distance would grow and become very large, extremely large, then at some point the orbit of the Moon around the Earth would also be unstable with respect to the Earth motion around the Sun. Now, this is nowhere near to be the case now, but for triple system, it's roughly the scale has to be such that the distance from the central star to the binary has to roughly to be three times larger than the internal separation between the two stars in a binary. And of course, if we talk about the Earth and the Moon system compared to the Sun, we're nowhere near this factor of three, because as you probably know, the distance from the Sun to the Earth is about 150 million kilometers whereas the distance between the Earth and the Moon is only some 400,000 kilometers. So this is a, a factor of more than 300. Uh, so we're nowhere near this critical limit of a factor of three. Okay, so, thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, do we have these several of these uh, binary and uh, objects that we have detected? And what's the significance of finding them? Uh, is it very much required in your current uh, research? Well, I'm I'm a theoretician, so... Um, I'm studying how two stars in a binary system interact with one another and, and perform mass transfer and what comes out of this. So, of course, the work I do is, is very much dependent on what the observers find because you always have to compare your theoretical work to observations. Otherwise, there's no way to, to calibrate what you're doing. And then in the end, we don't really learn anything if we don't have the observations. So it's very important that we have observations of binary systems. And, and luckily, we have uh, many space-borne X-ray detectors, which can detect these compact objects in binaries for which we see this uh, X-ray emission. But we're also lucky that we have some of these uh, radio pulsars, which we can observe with radio telescopes, such as the Lovell telescope right outside of Manchester. And in some cases, you have situations where a pulsar is orbiting another star. And this information is very useful for the work I do when I try to model the formation and the evolution of these binary systems. So these objects which they go around uh, one another is always in a rapid motion. Will it disturb the detection that we do or when we are looking at them, the signals, do they get distorted because of this? Yes, 
There are some selection effects that sometimes makes it difficult to observe a, a binary pulsar, for instance. If the orbital period is, is very small, say less than a few hours or so, then you have uh, quite some acceleration of the radio pulsar around the common sense of mass in the binary system. And therefore, there can be some smearing of the emitted radio pulse signal that the observers have to account for. So it can sometimes be difficult to pick out these very rapidly accelerating pulsars in very tight binaries. But of course, we hope that our observational colleagues will succeed because the more extreme, the more tight these binaries are, the more interesting they also are from a theory point of view. So moving on from the astronomy, you have interest towards reaching the public with science information. That's right. So would you like to tell us what special programs that you have been doing in terms of outreach? Well, I at some point I, I wrote a book, popular science book about astronomy. It's in Danish. It's wow. 232 pages. Wow. <laughs> and it's actually a book without any illustrations or any pictures whatsoever. So you might think that nobody would want to read a book about astronomy without any illustrations or any pictures. But there were some very special circumstances from the publishing company. They were making a whole series of books which are dedicated to different topics. What is sociology? What is astrophysics? And all of these titles. So there's a whole branch of different titles. My job was to write this book about uh, what is uh, astrophysics or what is astronomy. And when I learned from the publisher that the book would be without any pictures or illustrations, I said, uh, no, thank you, because nobody wants to to buy such a book and nobody's interested in reading it. But then I thought about it for two weeks and I came back to the publishers and I changed my mind. I would like to write the book because I realized that for me personally, it would be such a big challenge to see if I could write a book and only with the help of the written word, if I could excite and stimulate interest in, in, in the cosmos only with the help of words, then this would be a very interesting uh, challenge to, to try to achieve. I mean, if you compare to all other astronomy books, you always see beautiful colored pictures. And I should say, this is how I think such a book should be like. But it's easy to show a beautiful picture of a galaxy and then basically write figure captions underneath and then continue that page after page. But in this book I wrote, I described astronomy from old Babylonian and Greek astronomy all the way up to, to modern uh, Big Bang theory, only with the help of, of uh, words and no illustrations. And this was a big challenge to me. Oh. It took me... Two years, but I succeeded, and luckily the, the reviews in various newspapers were very positive, wow. so, so that was nice. And since then, I have written some newspaper articles for, for Danish uh, media, uh, mainly. That's Are you planning of bringing the Danish book to the rest of the world in a different translation? Um, I think the market for, for a book without any pictures is still very limited, so I don't think I would succeed in finding a publisher who would publish this book. But I would like to actually publish the book with the same content, but just including colorful pictures. So that would be something that I would like to do sometime when I find the time to do this. And you have also been traveling around the world in connection with your research. That's right. Quite a few times. I did my PhD work in Australia, so I was there uh, quite a bit. And then, of course, I always took every opportunity to travel between Denmark and Australia in a different way. So either going through some small Pacific islands or going through Borneo or whatever on the way back. So I got to, to see quite a bit of the world at that time when I was a PhD student. Wonderful. And coming to the talk that you will be giving to University of Manchester, Jural Bank Group of Astrophysics today, 
since the listeners in Jodhcast will be missing your talk, do you want to give what you will be telling in a nutshell for them today? Sure. My lecture today will be on the formation of double neutron star systems. So this is how nature manages to produce a binary system of two neutron stars orbiting each other in a close orbit. So I'm going to discuss for the major part of this talk, I'll discuss the formation of such a system, starting from the beginning where two massive stars are being born and then going through all the mass exchange interaction stages and the two supernova explosions until one forms uh, such a system with two neutron stars. And then the last part of my talk will be more dedicated to, to the expert working on neutron stars, where I will discuss our recent research on the formation of such uh, double neutron star systems. So this might be a little more technical, but um, this is the plan for the talk today. Thank you. Tommy, do you have anything? Yes, um, a couple of things, really. Most people's view of astronomers or astronomy is maybe sitting at an observatory, looking up at the sky and uh, observing things. But as a professional astronomer these days, um, most of the time he's spent in an office working behind a, a computer screen. Um, how do you find that? Is some of the romance missing? Or Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think it's sometimes we often forget. So here I'm talking about professional astronomers. Sometimes I think we often forget the beautiful universe and the, the whole beauty of the whole cosmos as such. Because even our observational colleagues, they don't sit anymore at the telescope side and stare into the sky. Quite often they just receive the data from a given telescope that somebody else has, has taken for them and they just view the data on a computer screen without actually being at the telescope. And I often find it... Uh, quite a pity that uh, that professional astronomers don't have this uh, link anymore to, to standing out in the open air and, and glare into the night sky. And I often see this enthusiasm if I go to visit uh, amateur astronomers who will meet night after night, very cold and remote places. They'll gather together and look into the night sky. And this is really... Uh, a good thing. This is very beautiful. And I, I wish that more people would do this. And I wish that more professional astronomers like myself would find the time to actually spend more time outside and just glare into the cosmos and just enjoy it. Because it's really beautiful. And you don't have to be an expert to, to enjoy uh, the look of the universe. It's fantastic for everybody. I agree. I belong to an amateur astronomical society. And that's literally what we do. We mm -hmm. just stand there cold night looking up at the clouds. It being Manchester, but occasionally it clears and we get a view of the sky. Mm -hmm. The plus side is you don't have to be at an observatory anymore. You don't have to travel to um, far-flung places. You can work literally from home. That's right. And get involved with you know, modern astronomy. Mm -hmm. well, I think that's one of the things we like to stimulate with the, the outreach side. Right. What drew you into... Neutron stars and pulsars in the first place. When I was a master's student at the University of Aarhus in Denmark, so I'd done my bachelor in physics and I just started my, my master's studies, I was considering whether or not I should go into nuclear physics or astrophysics. But then I had a lecturer who made a big impact on me. He was lecturing on the physics of compact objects, following the the classical book by Shapiro and Tchaikovsky on the physics of white dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes. And I was immediately sold. I just got hooked on neutron stars immediately, and I 
found that these objects were so exotic and so fascinating, the most perfect physics laboratories that you could think of. And since then, I have just totally been uh, involved with, with neutron stars. And they are, they are indeed very fascinating objects, and they will always be fascinating objects. So there are still so many things to investigate about these objects. One last question, coming back to somewhere in the, when we were talking, you mentioned about population synthesis and modeling. So what is this mm -hmm. about? Is it about stars? Or? Population synthesis and the modeling of, of a, a synthetic population can be applied to many different areas of, of science. So what we do in astronomy is that sometimes to answer questions about where a certain population of stars come from and what they evolve into, we try to make a synthetic population of, of, say, billions of stars. So we have some distributions of their masses and their orbital periods and so forth. And then we try to simulate evolution of a large number of stars. So, for instance, for learning more about the rate at which double neutron stars form, the rate at which these neutron stars can later collide and produce a gravitational wave events that will soon be detected, we make a synthetic population of billions of these binary stars, and then we evolve them right from the beginning. We evolve these stars and follow them, follow the mass transfer, follow the explosions, and see what the outcome is. And then we try to vary some of the input physics parameters, because there are many uncertain parameters in this business. And then by varying some of these parameters, we can study the outcome of the whole population. And then we can learn about the input physics by comparing the outcome to observations. So population synthesis simply means to, to mimic a large population of real binary stars, for instance. Thank you, Professor Thomas Torres. It's been very nice speaking to you today for Jodcast. And on behalf of Jodcast, myself, Prabhu Tyagaraj, and Thomas Gregg, wish you the very best for your research work and for your journey into science. Thank you very much. All my pleasure. Thank you for that, Prabhu and Tom. So now we come to the part of the show where we fit in the bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, which is the odds and ends. So, George, I think you were going to go first with yours. Yeah, so uh, I want to uh, talk about a little bit about my experiences in leading the organization for a small science meeting, which is going to be here at the University of Manchester, about measuring uh, star formation at radio millimeter and submillimeter wavelengths called Measuring Star Formation in the Radio Millimere and Submillimere because I'm relatively uncreative with names in general. And if you look at my research papers, they usually have names like I measured star formation in this galaxy using Alma, for example, or I looked at dust in this galaxy using Herschel. I hope you're the only author, otherwise you'll get corrected from I to E. It, it, it would be interesting if the name of the paper was, the title of the paper was literally I Measure Star Formation in... Uh, yes. The idea for this meeting was to uh, just get a bunch of people together who are working on this subject who just haven't been talking to each other in general. I had been thinking for a while since I started working with using ALMA specifically to measure star formation rates, so it would be good to get together people who are working on similar types of subject material just to exchange ideas and exchange uh, information on what people are finding in this line of research. I knew that there were a couple of people 
in the United States working on this. I knew that there was a little bit of interest in Japan, but it seemed based on the papers that people were writing that people weren't aware of research that other people were doing. Then, back in September, I went to a meeting called Half a Decade of Alma, which was held outside of Palm Springs in California, and I met both people from a group in the United States and people from a group in Japan who were both looking at very similar types of ways to measure star formation that I was using to measure star formation with Alma. And even though we had all submitted abstracts for talks at the meeting, we were all relegated to the poster section. And the meeting mainly discussed uh, other topics covered by Alma. And one of those other topics were relatively important topics in terms of research with Alma in general. It was just kind of a shame that they mostly avoided talking about actually being able to use Alma to measure star formation. So I got back in touch with those people after a return to Manchester, the other people who I said were working on similar material, and asked them if they would like to be involved in organizing a conference and they said they wouldn't. I talked to a couple other people here, and Tom Muxlow from here is also involved. Uh, he's been uh, the other person who's been uh, heavily involved in terms of the local organization, and he also put forward, uh, as well as a couple other people, put forward suggestions for a couple other people from outside who could fill out the scientific organizing committee. So after that, the first half of the organization, the meeting, uh, was mainly focused on just advertising the meeting and and asking people to sign up for the meeting. And I was kind of worried that we may not get that many people signed up or, and that people ignore the meeting. Like I said, we're going to hold the meeting in Manchester. We're going to do it in the level room, which can hold at least 50 people, maybe 60 people, maybe more if we really stuff them in, although it may get too <laughs> crowded. I was worried that we wouldn't get that many people. I was thinking that I would be happy if we got 30 people who registered in total. And about... Like organizing a party, you always end up with too much food. Well, food's different subjects, which I'll come to in a moment. <laughs> By the time the abstract submission deadline closed, we had over 50 people registered. Okay. And so we set uh, a limit of 50. So it's uh, we just uh, closed registration after that. And then I got emails after that from people who just said, I wanted to uh, register, but uh, either one, I missed the abstract submission deadline, or two... We originally had a second deadline for people who wanted to register but who didn't want to give talks. And uh, there's at least one person who was a little unhappy with the fact that registration closed because we sort of maxed out the number of people that we were expecting in the first place. We did eventually figure out that we could get all of those other people in. So I think everybody is happy. You can, you can always rely on astronomers to leave things till the last minute and miss well, a deadline and then plead innocence anyway and <laughs> there, there were a couple of people who were along those lines and then there were a couple of other people who were expecting a later deadline but just because the meeting fold, filled up so quickly I, we decided to just close registration because there were just too many people than what we were expecting so the registration deadline closed in mid-April. Uh, since then, the Science Organizing Committee took a look at all the abstracts and decided that, well, they were all worthwhile featuring at the meeting. We didn't have anything that was radically off-subject. We had a couple of things which just seemed only loosely connected to conference style, but the subject of the conference, but we figured that it would still be useful to uh, have those talks in the conference anyway. 
and that those types of talks would still be interesting to other people. I mean, having said that, there are a couple of talks which seem slightly off base compared to conference subject, but which are things which I'm really personally interested in. So maybe the people with those talks will get talking to each other and complain <laughs> about the main focus of your conference and then organize their own new splinter conference and then the cycle will continue. Yes, that is a possibility. It did seem like there was an awful lot of demand for this type of uh, subject material. We are having people coming from uh, all over the world. One of the jokes which passed through my mind is that we'll have people flying in from Australia and Hawaii and Japan. And given that, it may have been more efficient for those people at least to hold the meeting someplace more central like Fiji. <laughs> be much better with it may depend on where you hold in Fiji because uh, they tr uh, after living in Hawaii, I can tell you that there are a lot of microclimates. Ah, uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> after that, it's mainly been uh, an issue of just getting all of the logistics of the meeting put together. Uh, so food, which uh, Ian mentioned earlier, has been one of my major concerns because I figured out that it was going to cost over 1,500 pounds to feed everybody. We uh, eventually came up with a solution where we're going to ask people to pay a, a small fee if they want catered lunches for all three days of the meeting, and we'll provide free coffee for everybody. I was half concerned that we wouldn't have any place to get money from, and so it's uh, in the most desperate situation I would actually pay for all of the food and coffee myself or something. Oh, you, sh yeah. you should not do that. No. <laughs> we, for, science funding in the UK isn't quite that bad yet. <laughs> yeah, it's just a matter of like trying to find, well, one, trying to find pots of money to uh, cover food and coffee and also just trying to figure out how to do stuff logistically. Tom Muxlow, uh, who I mentioned was like uh, the other local person on the uh, organizing committee, spent a lot of time looking into just the logistics of setting up the payment system for covering the catered lunches. It's apparently much more complicated than you really want to uh, <laughs> deal with. I've also, uh, since telling everybody that we accepted their abstracts, uh, I've also spent time putting together a schedule. I got so many emails about recommended hotels that I sent out an email just telling people, okay, here are a few hotels that we will recommend. Here are the hotels to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> I did tell a, yeah. I did tell a couple of people to uh, avoid a couple of the hotels in the city center, which have a bad reputation. I think when the when the meeting date, which is uh, the twenty fourth to the twenty sixth of July, gets closer, I will begin to worry a bit more about logistical things. I am thinking that the week before I may want to personally clean the level room. <laughs> so we we had a, uh, a a meeting on my specialist subject of radio weak lensing a couple of years ago at the JBCA held in the level room. On the Monday after the Friday, which was the JBCA welcome party. Oh dear. And JBCA welcome parties tend to trash the level room, I think is probably a reasonable description of what happens. Yeah, so I had to be in on the Sunday because of course our cleaners don't appear until Monday morning. Yeah, physically cleaning up all of the various stains and uh, sticky things from the tables in order that it was fit for our, our conference attendees on the Monday. So that was a fun weekend I had a couple of years ago. I can picture you wearing yellow rubber gloves and with a sponge in one hand and carpet spot cleaner in the other hand. Probably, uh, it's not a million miles from the truth. Economy-sized carpet spot cleaner, given how large some of the spots are. I'm hoping that doesn't happen, uh, partly because <laughs> it's uh, this conference is in July, and so people tend not to uh, do stuff 
at their home institutions in July or August. They tend to go to other people's institutions in July or August or just go on holiday altogether, which is uh, kind of my impression of what happens to the whole of Germany in August. In any case, maybe after the meeting is over, I'll be able to say some more about what happened with the meeting, how it went. Might be able to steal away some of your speakers to be interviewed for the Jodcast, perhaps. That is one of the things which uh, I'm going to worry about more when the meeting comes closer, is actually setting up interviews with a few of the people. We are going to have close to 40 speakers at the meeting. It's going to be a very packed three days. (laughs) And I'm going to be one of those speakers, but you get to hear me all the time. And (laughs) there are also a couple of other local people who will be speaking, so they may not be that interesting to interview just because you always have the opportunity to interview them. Should do a job by Don Tom Muxlow, by the way. Has one ever been done? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one was done, but it was done such a long time ago. He, he definitely predates the Jodcast, so <laughs> it would be... You would hope most people mm. working here predate the Jodcast. I mean, predate <laughs> in Jodrell. He okay. predate yeah. in the yeah. context of Jodrell. Yeah, hopefully uh, some people will agree to interviews with the Jodcast in any case. So I guess that brings me on to my odd and end this month, although I've actually decided to sneak two in. So the first one is relevant to astronomy, but isn't science necessarily. Well, it is still research. and it was Published in a scientific journal. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's not the science of astronomy, I suppose. So there was a paper published late last year um, up on the archive looking at gender bias in citations of astronomy papers. And it's recently been highlighted in Nature this month. And um, I hadn't actually noticed it before, um, which is a bit of a shame, but I had a, look to, had a look at it. And it's actually got some pretty interesting points, not just related to the gender of authors in astronomy. And this is kind of a particularly relevant issue because, it, you know, if you look at the proportion of women in astronomy, I think for PhD students, it's maybe about 25% of PhD students are women in astronomy, and then it drops off after they're quite steadily. And it's something that I think has improved over time, but nowhere near as much as people would like. So this report really builds on a lot of existing work out there. So um, some of the stuff it discusses, things like, so when papers are submitted to an academic journal, they're refereed as part of the peer review process. But referees typically give higher scores to male authors or or papers that are are led by male authors. Um, And that's actually been shown that... Um, there was a paper published in 2008 showing that if you double blind all of the reviewing process, you actually get more papers led by female authors getting through peer review, which is actually pretty horrifying. <laughs> but at least that does show that there is a clear positive step. In addition as well, there's also some existing research that shows that when people are applying for time on the Hubble Space Telescope, if it's led by a female PI, so the person leading the project, they are also less likely to succeed in their application. So it is clearly having some impacts on science in itself. So this paper particularly decided to use data that was already out there to see if they could look into this bias a little bit more. So they use the ADS record, so this just online records of papers published in astronomy that cover the kind of five major astronomy journals. And they looked at the gender of the, they were specifically looking at lead authors. So they looked at their gender and their seniority. They had to judge gender purely by name. So there is a lot of discussion about how, you know, that's not 
adequate, mm. really. Um, there's lots of names that are ambiguous with this reference to gender, but they oh. say it's yeah, the first I'll, attempt. Yeah, I was just thinking that when you mentioned refereeing, I've mm-hmm. refereed two papers recently, and one of them, the nationality of the people is such that I would not be able to tell you what the gender was right mm-hmm. away of the people, which may mean that I took a very gender-neutral approach to uh, refereeing that specific paper. Well, and there's a big question about whether, yeah, is there a need for names to be attached to the peer review process anyway? Because arguably you should be judging something by the science rather than who's done it. And it but that's a whole whole issue, but we'll come back to that perhaps in a sec. So just thinking a little bit about how they approach this first, because I think this is quite, it's one of those issues where you can definitely get stuck in the details and not sure if they've actually found anything. So they looked at, yeah, the gender of the authors. Who knew there is a Python module that helps you determine the gender of names? That exists. Python has everything. <laughs> it blew my mind. And they also looked at the seniority of the authors as well, and they judged that by looking at um, how many years it had been since they published their first paper. Again, not a perfect metric, but reasonable-ish. I would agree that that's reasonably good. Yeah. And in fact, in ADS abstracts, you often find people's PhDs listed as well. Yeah. So you can also use that potentially as a measure of seniority in a way, or at least amount of time spent working in the field. Yeah, I, I'll admit I have actually used that as a measure of seniority myself when I've been interviewing someone <laughs> to find out how long they've been around if I can't find their CV online. So in looking at the results, you know, they aren't just about gender. So if you look at, they looked at some of the general trends in publishing over time. And for example, they found that your typical researcher now publishes twice as many papers as they did 30 years ago, which is a lot. <laughs> and also they have many, many more references than they used to. Again, typically about twice as many, which makes sense because there are more papers. And I think that in itself is an interesting point because it goes to show how maybe the day-to-day role of a researcher has changed in that additional reading load that all researchers are having to take on more than they did 30 years ago. Oh, it's uh, another thing, too, is that people don't want to feel left out. So I had an experience, uh, for example, when I was finishing my PhD back in 2002 in, in the United States and publishing papers on that where I got contacted and told, oh, you left out our paper, which is also relevant to the subject. Please cite our paper. And uh, so I decided, okay, yeah, I'll just include that paper. Uh, Since then, I've taken more of an attitude when I write papers myself that it's better just to overload the paper with references rather than to leave stuff out as well. Also depends on the type of material that I'm writing as well, since quite a bit of my recent work with both Alma and the Herschel Space Observatory has been covering multiple wavelengths besides the wavelengths covered by those observatories. Uh, That often involves citing people from a broad swath of astronomy, and so I end up with huge reference lists in my paper, maybe a page or a page and a half, typically. Mm -hmm. So so you mentioned... uh prompted citations via email uh, so there's clearly going to be large selection effects associated with that because yeah. the people who are willing to go out of their way to send that kind of email and be self-promoting in that kind of way are probably going to be a different set of people than necessarily the one that you want to be representing as most relevant to the paper you're actually writing as well so if you miss a reference from a person who isn't very self-promoting or is a bit shy and not so eager to send that email versus if you miss a paper which is maybe less relevant from someone who just likes sending off those kind of emails, then you're more likely to cite something by somebody who is that kind of self-promoting. That's an interesting yeah. point. That could... and Yeah, and I think it's hard as an author to 
try and cite fairly, if that makes sense, because I think everyone does their best. But to some extent, you become more aware of papers that are in by people in the circles that you're in, for example. Um, and there's all of these kind of different cultural things within the field that are going to work against you. So in terms of what their findings are, they found that male-led papers are cited more often, even when controlling for the seniority of the author. And there's quite a lot of analysis with this, so we'll link to the actual paper if you want to see all the details, because I'm not going to go through it all. But it did seem reliable for my first look. And they actually found that, so if they compared the properties of the papers, papers so if they blinded them, and they, they used like a set of measures to determine the characteristics of a paper, so like some measure of how good it was. And yes, that is very questionable. Um, I can see George's face at me right now. But they found that based on that, female-led papers of the same quality as the male papers were cited 10% less. And they reckon that if you had elimin- you were able to eliminate the bias there, that male papers would be cited 5% less than they are now. That's what they think. What I thought was good about this is they actually don't really go into any of the details on it because actually... the So whilst this is really, really good because it sheds some light on what may be happening there, it doesn't actually, with this kind of analysis, you can't actually find out about what the causes are. So they don't try and overstate their findings in that respect. Because, you know, this is a reasonably small difference, looking at 5-10%, but it's interesting in itself. There were also some other points in there which I think were curious. So things like seven years after their first paper, women published 20% fewer papers than men which I would never have guessed at all. And also, portion of papers that are published by women has been increasing recently. So now women in astronomy publish about a quarter of all papers, but they are still much less likely to publish a paper in journals like Nature and Science. So the so-called, although it is very debatable, and prestigious journals. (laughs) But I think it's an interesting piece of research anyway, using data that was, you know, freely out there, um, which I think is always good. And if there is something in this, which seems, you know, definitely plausible, then it's worth looking into a bit more. But it's a lot to digest because <laughs> there's a lot of information it, in the paper. This was a group of astronomers themselves yep. making use of this data. Yeah, so they are um, they're astronomers from ETH in Zurich. Have, I couldn't find anything else. I didn't look into them massively to see, but I didn't think they necessarily had a background in this mm-hmm. area of research. I think they are just astronomers, um, which I think, yeah, is a good sign that people in the field are caring about this mm-hmm. um, not that they haven't before but you know and actually taking an action on it it's also just worth pointing out in terms of this line of research uh, that uh, the ads abstract service may be a relatively unique service at least for physics and astronomy in that it was set up very early in the history of the web and it's been the primary go-to source for astronomy research specifically, whereas in the sciences in general, there are other broader-based abstract services like Web of Science, which may also give different results Mm -hmm. uh, from ADS abstracts. I personally like ADS abstracts so much that I see no reason to go use uh, some other resource for this type of analysis. Yeah, it's definitely probably, well, I would have thought it's the most widely used service in astronomy of that type. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of no reason to use anything else that does the job. But I think an interesting result, nonetheless, um, and worth keeping an eye on to see what else comes out this way, I think. And, you know, even, as I was saying, just the information they've got about how publishing behaviour of researchers as a whole has changed over time is pretty interesting. So your average paper now has about 60 
referees. <laughs> 60 referees that would take forever. Um, 60 references, <laughs> um, which, you know, goes towards that saying I've got a whole page of references. And also, um, I don't know if I said before, papers with women as first author typically have more references as well. But read into that what you will. I pride myself in being able to get over 100 references into a paper. <laughs> so you're massively <laughs> skewing that average then. <laughs> Like I said, some of these papers just seem to get very cross-disciplinary sometimes or mm-hmm. just seem to cover so many different types of subjects. Yeah, and it does differ based on field. So for my second odd and end this month, um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about some quasar companions that have turned up. So it's been fairly well established that you find these massive galaxies at redshift of about four, so that's about one and a half billion years after the Big Bang. So truly huge, weighing more than 100 billion times the mass of the Sun, so really really giant so the problem with that is that to get to galaxies of that mass um, you really need to see star formation rates of around a hundreds of solar masses per year so you need to be forming a lot of stars right in the early universe and just by coincidence um, some researchers at MPIA um, led by Roberto De Carli were looking at quasars um, using the ALMA telescope and they happen to find what they think may be a new population of galaxies. So they found four cases where these quasars, these really, really bright galaxies, have a companion galaxy nearby. And when you look more closely at the companion galaxy, you see really, really high rates of star formation. Um, and they're high enough that they would potentially solve this puzzle. Um, and they're about the right redshift, so about redshift of six, which is about a billion years after the Big Bang. And this they say this isn't much of a surprise in some respects because you would um, expect quasars to occur where you've got a really high density and you'd also expect to see lots of star formation in those regions. So they say it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I guess the question following on from this is, can you actually show that these are the precursors to those giant galaxies? So we've seen, we found them, so they might be, but it's kind of bridging that gap between the two. But it seems like an interesting find anyway. I'm waiting for George's opinion on this, because he's much more knowledgeable in this area than I am. Yeah, it's uh, using dust emission to measure star formation, right? And I've kind of moved into something which says that's not quite the greatest, but it's probably okay for this as long as something weird is not happening. Given that this is the early universe, there's always an opportunity for something weird to be happening. True. How many of these objects do they have? I think only four, so not very many again. I mean, it's very questionable whether or not that's enough to say you found a new population of galaxies, but in astronomy, who knows? Uh, <laughs> it's justification for doing a follow-up proposal with Alma to get lots more observing time to go search for these companions, potentially. Yes. So, yeah. so, so something you could do. So my PhD gave me the hammer of extreme value statistics, and this looks like a nail. Um, <laughs> so you could certainly work out what the most extreme expected star formation rate would be, and hence the most extreme expected stellar mass in these galaxies would be for their given formation period, and then work out if the ones which exist are significantly worse than that or not. So it's a good way of doing low number statistics, and obviously I try and shoehorn it in wherever possible. <laughs> you should reach out to them, you know? <laughs> Maybe they'll listen to the Judcast. If you're listening to the Judcast, guys, get on it. Um, <laughs> get in touch. <laughs> I'm being prompted to do my odd and end as a beginner. Um, I'm also going to thank Monique for doing two because I have only one lightly prepared on an end. Uh, but it is about mysterious flashes of light on satellite images of the Earth. Mm. And I know what you're thinking, George. You're thinking aliens, but but it's not aliens. I never think aliens. I think aliens are overrated. But also, I mean, if they were on Earth, isn't it more likely to be 
humans, not aliens. If it's images of Earth. Yeah. You, yeah. It's humans flying in <laughs> UFOs. It's it could be UFOs you. called airplanes with <laughs> wings and jet engines. Technology from the 20th century. Ooh. Sorry, Ian, carry on. <laughs> it's actually none of those things either. So what the phenomena this is referring to is apparently many years now, people working with Earth observation satellites have seen incredibly bright flashes of light coming from the direction of Earth and not really had any idea what these could have been. They didn't necessarily correlate things like you would expect, like reflections from the sea or anything like that. They were occurring at different latitudes and somebody has apparently worked out where these flashes were coming from. They're typically known as glints, apparently, and where they actually come from is ice crystals between five and eight kilometres uh, up in the atmosphere. Alex Kostinsky, a physicist at Michigan Technological University in Holton, and his colleagues have uh, used something called the Deep Space Climate Observatory, which has the beautiful acronym, which they definitely didn't think of first, of DSCOVR, or DISCOVER, and looked at these glints, studied them in detail, studied the, the latitudes that they were forming at, and also in particular looked at the spectra, which allows them to see exactly where the oxygen absorption lines are so they can see what heights these glints are actually coming from. And by looking at this, they can see that it's this kind of five to eight kind of kilometer regime. So it's in ice in the cloud cover, which apparently people know can be these kind of flat disks, which if oriented correctly, are capable of giving these very bright reflections of sunlight, which is what has been blinding these Earth observation satellites. Wait, so, so it's not aliens, it's clouds. Yeah, yeah, frozen clouds. Or potentially just ice crystals. So sometimes in Manchester you can see a phenomena called sundogs, which are uh, kind of a uh, rainbow-like reflection of sunlight, which you see about 22 degrees away from the sun through high cirrus clouds. These are actually the same types of ice crystals I which Ian is talking about. The sundogs are actually part of a much more broader range of phenomena called halos, which are caused by refraction and reflection of uh, light through these types of ice crystals in the upper atmosphere. Apparently very common in polar climates like uh, Antarctica, for example. I used to see this type of thing frequently in a couple of different places, which I lived in the United States. It also uh, kind of freaked out people a whole lot when <laughs> it suddenly appeared in Hawaii one time because there were actually uh, ice crystals like this in the upper atmosphere. So it's kind of interesting to find out these same types of ice crystals uh, are producing these types of glints that we're seeing with Discover. The way this links back outside of mere Earth observation, if mere is the correct, correct term for that, the reason it appeared on my radar is because they talk about the relevance of this to finding exoplanets and Earth-like exoplanets. So the possibly tenuous link is that these glints are so incredibly bright, they are capable of, you know, completely overwhelming the, the CCD detectors on the Discover satellite. Um, if they exist on other exoplanets, then you no longer need liquid water on the surface of an exoplanet to generate these kind of glints which could be exceptionally bright and maybe detectable by things searching for exoplanets you could also see them from these kind of mid to high altitude clouds as well so it's an extra channel for um, observing exoplanets although i don't know how bright the glints are going to be from tens of light years away from the planet that seems quite ambitious to me as well but they're definitely keen to push that angle in the story mm. so uh... <laughs> and now 
some hopefully explained lights you can see from the Earth. Here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for June 2017. Well, to be honest, we don't get very dark nights during June. Um, there's a definition of what's called astronomical twilight, which is really before it gets really dark, and that is defined to end when the sun gets to 18 degrees below the horizon. And in fact, from the UK, that never happens during June. I was at a star party um, towards the end of May, and in fact, astronomical twilight both ended and began again almost instantaneously at around 1am, which of course is around midnight at UT. Anyway, there are still things to look at. So let's now have a look at the planets. Jupiter. It's now two months after opposition, but it still dominates the late evening sky, shining the south to southwest after nightfall. It sets at around 3am BST as June begins, and by about 1am at its end. As the month progresses, its brightness falls from minus 2.3 to minus 2.0 magnitudes, whilst the angular size falls from 41 to 37 arc seconds. It lies in Virgo, some 11 degrees to the west of Spica, Alpha Virginis, and halts its westward retrograde motion on the 11th of the month, as it begins to initially, slowly, move eastwards back towards Spica. It passes Spica on September the 11th, on its journey towards the lower parts of the ecliptic. Next year, sadly, it will only reach an elevation of some 25 degrees when due south, and for the following two years, just 18 degrees, before it begins to move back towards the more northerly parts of the ecliptic, when we obviously get better views. Even so, in the next few weeks, with a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, we spotted that the other night with a four-inch telescope, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn. Saturn comes into opposition. That's when it's highest in the sky and due south around midnight UT, about one o'clock BST, and that's on June the 11th. It will be visible, of course, throughout the short night. It shines at magnitude 0.1 all month with an angular size of 18.3 arc seconds. The rings, with an angle of 26.5 degrees to the line of sight, are virtually as open as they ever can be. And again, it's sad that Saturn, now lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, between Sagittarius and Scorpius, only reaches an elevation of some 17 degrees above the horizon when due south, so hindering our view of this most beautiful planet. If imaging Saturn, or Jupiter, Registax 6 has a tool to align the red and green and blue colours to largely remove the atmospheric dispersion from the image, and at a cost of somewhat over £100, one can purchase the ZWO Atmospheric Dispersion Corrector, which uses two contra-rotating prisms to carry out an even better correction. And that, of course, can be used for visual observations as well. Mercury is lost in the glare of the sun for most of the month before it makes a modest evening apparition in July. It might just be spotted with binoculars very low in the west after sunset, at the very end of the month. Please, of course, do not use binoculars until after the sun has set. Well, following a two-year-long apparition, Mars finally slips into the sun's glare in the first week of June. 
Well, I suppose, if you try hard, its salmon pink disc might just be picked out in the west-northwest. Now, Venus is now an, a morning object, visible in the east before dawn, reaching its greatest elongation, that's 46 degrees west of the sun, on the 3rd of June. Its magnitude dims slightly during the month from minus 4.5 to minus 4.2, whilst the angular size shrinks from 24 to 18 arc seconds. However, at the same time, the illuminated phase, the parts illuminated by the sun, increases from 48 to 62%, which explains why the magnitude does not drop too much. Even though, after the third, it'll be moving back towards the sun, as the angle of the ecliptic to the horizon increases at this time of year, its elevation before sunrise will actually continue to increase until August. What about the highlights? Well, in early June, it's still worth viewing Jupiter. Though past its best, you'll see it in the south to southwest after sunset. It's moving down the ecliptic and lies in Virgo. And as I said, it reaches an elevation of about 36 degrees when crossing the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. Although I have to say... When I took an image of Jupiter with a red spot, more or less, on the meridian, it actually didn't look too small. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned 40,000 kilometres across, but now appears to be only about 16,500 kilometres across, less than half the size. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate that it's now reducing by 580 miles per year. I wonder if it will eventually disappear. June is the best month to observe Saturn, which reaches opposition on the 14th of June. So it will then be due south and highest in the sky around midnight UT or 1am BST. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. And a small telescope will show the rings with a magnification of 25 times or more, and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture with a magnification of times 200, coupled with a night of good seeing, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system to its full glory. The thing that makes Saturn stand out, of course, is its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture, if the seeing conditions are good. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or crepe ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes as it orbits the Sun, and twice each orbit they lie edge-on to us can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009, and now, having opened up, currently at an angle of 26.5 degrees to the line of sight, they're essentially as open as they ever will be. And for around the end of this month, the ring's orientation will begin to narrow until March 2025, when they will then appear edge-on again. June is a nice month to find the globular cluster in Hercules and also spot what's called the double-double in Lyra. The two constellations are rising in the east after sunset, and by the time it gets dark, they're fairly high in the sky. Two-thirds of the way up, of the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation Hercules is M13, 
the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky, looking like a fuzzy, fuzzy glow in binoculars. And just to the left of the bright star Vega in Lyra is the multiple star system called Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen, but when observed with a telescope, each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. In late June, as a result of the sun being relatively low below the northern horizon, it's a very good time to spot non-delucent clouds. They're also known as polar mesospheric clouds, and they're most commonly seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude. They're the highest clouds in the atmosphere, basically ice crystals, I suspect, at heights of around 80 kilometres or 50 miles, normally too faint to be seen. They're visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So, on a clear, dark night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look towards the north, and you might just spot them. They look very beautiful, actually. So a few minor things. On June the 3rd, in the evening, the waxing moon will lie less than two degrees up and to the right of Jupiter. Around midnight on the 8th, 9th of June, the four Galilean satellites line up on one side of the giant planet. Well, we have one meteor shower this month, the Lyrid meteor shower, best seen on the nights of June the 15th to 16th. It reaches its peak on that date with a rate of about 18 meteors per hour seen at the zenith. That's not too many. And as the moon is close to third quarter, it may actually be rather hard to spot one. And as the name suggests, the radiant is very close to the star Vega. Many meteors were seen from the shower in the late 1960s, but the peak hourly rate has dropped off markedly since then. If clear, it may well be worth aiming to see if you can spot one. On the 21st of June before dawn, Venus will be seen some four degrees above a very thin, waning crescent moon. And in late June, around midnight, comet 2015V2 Johnson will be actually visible below Arcturus as it crosses across Virgo. And on the night sky page, I've given a chart to show you where to have a look. It's closest, in fact, to the sun on June the 12th, 1.64 AU, so it would be best to see then, except, of course, that's very close to full moon. The moon. I, I like to point out something interesting. On June the 3rd and the 16th, the Alpine Valley is close to the Terminator, and so a good time to be observed. So there are two good nights to observe an interesting feature should you have a small telescope. Close to the Terminator on those nights, 3rd and 16th, lies the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end, you see a cleft across them, which is called the Alpine Valley. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. A thin rill runs along its length, but that's quite a challenge to observe, and I frankly have never seen it. Nearby is the dark crater Plato, and also below the young crater Copernicus. It's actually a very interesting region of the moon. Well, I do hope you have a chance to see some of the sights in the June sky, admittedly without too much time to do it. Oh, the night sky for June 2017. Well, what do we see in the heavens? Well, constellation-wise, 
The constellation of Leo the Lion is setting towards the western horizon after dark, and high in the south, the brightest object is the star Arcturus at the bottom of the constellation of Bootes. Up to its right is the plough. In fact, the three stars that make up the handle of the plough point down towards Arcturus quite nicely. The central star of those three stars making up the handle you see with binoculars as a double star, Alcor and Mizar. But then later, if you have a telescope, you can see that Mizar is itself a double. A nice little thing to have a look at. Over to the upper left of Arcturus, we begin to see the beautiful region of the sky that contains what's called the Summer Triangle. Below is the star Altair in Aquila, the eagle. Up to the left is Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. And down to its right is Vega, the brightest star in Lyra. So those three stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. If you look part way along, about a third of the way from Altair to Vega, when there's no moon, you actually cross what's called the Cygnus Rift, a fairly dark part of the Milky Way. And in front of it is a rather nice asterism called Brocky's Cluster, or the Kotanger, because it looks like a little Kotanger upside down. Over to the left of Alfair is a very sweet constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. You can almost imagine it leaping out of the sea. Thanks for that, Ian. And for Antipodian listeners, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the June Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. This month we reach our winter solstice here in the Southern Hemisphere, when the south pole of the Earth is at its greatest tilt away from the sun. This means that the sun appears much lower in the sky, our days are shorter and colder, and our nights are longer. This year the solstice falls on the 21st of June, New Zealand Standard Time. Whilst always around this time, the actual date of the winter solstice can sometimes fall on the 22nd. This is because it takes the Earth approximately 365 and a quarter days to go around the Sun. But we don't count that extra quarter day in our calendars every year. We save them up for a leap year. So the timing of the solstice slips around six hours later each year until we add an extra day and it jumps back to the beginning again. The word solstice means sun stopped or sun still because the Sun rises and sets at its most northerly points of the year. As we move back towards the summer, the sun will gradually rise and set further and further south until it stops again at the summer solstice in December and begins the long journey back north. Whilst the cold weather at this time of year may not be so welcome, the long, dark nights provide a perfect opportunity to observe our beautiful southern skies. We're very lucky here in the southern hemisphere that we have a perfect view towards the central bulge of our Milky Way galaxy, so it appears broader and brighter across our sky. The centre lies towards the constellations of Sagittarius the Archer and Scorpius the Scorpion, which is now midway up our eastern evening skies. Scorpius is our winter constellation, and together with Sagittarius a little below, will be dominating our skies over the next few months. At the heart of the scorpion is the bright orange-tinged star Antares, a red supergiant with a radius nearly 900 times that of the sun. The name Antares means rival of Mars because of its distinctive colour, which tells us that it is a cooler star at around 3,500 degrees. 
Antares lies 550 light years away and is amongst the 20 brightest stars in the nighttime sky. To the left of Antares is a line of stars now forming the Scorpion's Claws, and further left still, the faint zodiac constellation of Libra, the Scales. Libra's two brightest stars form an almost vertical line in our evening sky, and have perhaps the best names of any I have seen, Zubinel Ganubi and Zubinesh Shamali. Zubinel Ganubi, the higher of the two, is halfway between Antares and Spica, at a distance of around 77 light-years. At magnitude 2.7, it enjoys the Alpha designation, despite being slightly fainter than its beta counterpart below, probably because it lies just a third of a degree from the ecliptic. Using binoculars, you'll see that Zubinel Ganubi is in fact a double star, with two components separated by around 5,400 AU, which is a little under four arc minutes on the sky, and which appear to be co-moving through space. Strictly speaking, the name Zubinel Ganubi now only refers to the brighter of the two. Both components are spectroscopic binary stars in their own right, and there may also be a fifth component to the system, KU Libri, located 2.6 degrees away. Below Alpha Libri is the slightly brighter Beta Libri, or Zubinesh Shamali, at magnitude 2.6, which lies 185 light-years away. Zubinesh Shamali is a hot blue main-sequence star, so 130 times more luminous than the Sun, and with twice the surface temperature. While stars of this type are often seen as white or bluish in colour, Zubinesh Shamali has often been described as greenish by observers, the only green star visible to the naked eye. Whilst theoretically this is not possible, scientists are still unsure why so many observers claim to see it this way. Whilst the day these stars are part of Libra, the names Zubinel Ganubi and Zubinesh Shamali derive from the Arabic for the southern claw and northern claw of the scorpion, referring back to the ancient Greeks who saw these stars as part of the constellation of Scorpius. The idea of scales or a balance can be traced back to ancient Babylonians, though, some 4,000 years ago, at a time when the northern hemisphere autumnal equinox, where the sun crosses the equator from the northern to southern hemisphere, appeared in that part of the sky. The choice of scales likely relates to the balance between light and dark, with equal hours of day and night experienced at the equinox, as well as the change of seasons from summer to winter, and therefore hot to cold. The Romans revived the idea, seeing Libra as the scales of justice held by Astraea, the starry goddess, represented by the neighbouring zodiac constellation of Virgo. Virgo is currently home to bright Jupiter, sat a little to the left of the constellation's brightest star, Spica, high in the northeast after dark. Below Scorpius is our second evening planet, cream-coloured Saturn, shining at magnitude naught this month. Saturn reaches opposition on the 15th, when it will be directly opposite the sun in the sky, and overhead at midnight. Saturn will also be at its closest to Earth around this time, making it appear at its largest and brightest, although in practice any difference will be hard to spot with the naked eye. Do take a look through a small telescope if you get a chance, though. This opposition, its rings will be almost at maximum tilt, so should be a wonderful sight. Here in New Zealand, we don't have scorpions, so we see Scorpius as something a little more familiar in the Southern Pacific. To Maui, this group of stars is known as Temato Amaui, the fishhook of Maui, which he used to pull a great fish out of the ocean that became the North Island of New Zealand, Te Ika Amaui. Antares is known as Rehua, 
and represents a drop of blood that Maui took from his nose to use as bait. This constellation was an important aid for ancient Pacific navigators, as it travels directly overhead from our latitude. Once Temeto Maui was right overhead, it was simply a case of travelling east or west to find Aotearoa, New Zealand. By just before sunrise, Scorpius or Temeto Maui has moved to the west-southwestern horizon, with the hook pointing upwards. The morning skies at this time of year are particularly important here in New Zealand, as this is the time we celebrate Matariki, or Maori New Year. The timing of this celebration is based on the heliacal rising of the small group of stars known as Matariki or the Pleiades. Opposite Scorpius in the morning sky is his arch-enemy, Orion the Hunter, rising directly east with the three bright stars of his belt lying along the horizon. These are also known as Totoru here in New Zealand. If you follow these stars along the horizon to the right, they point to Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in the nighttime sky. Follow them to the left and you first come to a V-shape forming the head of Taurus the bull, with the bright star Aldebaran marking his eye, and then to Matariki rising in the east-northeast. The Pleiades is, in fact, visible throughout most of the year, but it is only known as Matariki around this time. It disappears from our evening skies around April each year, before reappearing in the morning in early June. It is this reappearance, or heliacal rising, that tells us that the old year is coming to an end. The next new moon, or for some iwi the next full moon, marks the beginning of the new year. This year the new moon falls on the 24th of June, and may be visible a day or two after this. So Matariki will officially be celebrated on the 25th of the month. In Maori mythology, Matariki, Totoru, Takurua and Rohua form four po, or pillars, that hold Ranganui, the sky father, in the sky. Matariki supported one of Rangi's shoulders and marks the rising point of the sun at the winter solstice. Takarua Sirius supports the other shoulder and is the closest bright star to the sun's rising point at the summer solstice. These two stars represent the extent of the sun's movement throughout the year. Totoru held Rangi's neck and marks a celestial equator which runs along the length of Ranganui's backbone. Pututurangi, or the star Alte, marks the other end. Over in the west, Rehua, or Antares, supports Ranganui's lower torso. A line drawn from Matariki to Rehua marks the ecliptic, the pathway of the sun, moon and planets through the sky. These four po form the basis of a celestial compass, a map of the night sky that was used to navigate the Pacific Ocean and bring our ancestors to Aotearoa. Today, Matariki is a chance for all New Zealanders to unite in celebration of this great land we all call home. It's a chance to reflect on the state of the planet we live on and the bounty that we receive from Mother Earth, to celebrate our shared history and to reflect on our very unique place in the universe. Namihi o te toho kiakoto katoa. Wishing you all a very happy new year from the team here at Space Place. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Okay, so we have one piece of Facebook feedback for this month, which comes from Andrew Horner, who says, I really enjoyed the May Extra edition. It was great to hear about the work on the Lovell Cam project. As an aside, James mentioned that the Pulsar group is using extreme neutron star systems called Black Widows and Redbacks to study high-energy physics. Can we have more on this in a future episode? The odds and ends on solar system formation and the effect of supernovae on Earth 
were also thought-provoking. First-class episode from start to finish. Yeah, that's always good to get that kind of feedback. I have already looked into trying to find someone to interview, so I'll, I can say that is definitely coming up in the future. And if you have any other topics that you'd like us to cover, please let us know and we'll see what we can do. It gives me an excuse to go follow someone around the department with a recorder. I think that goes for more than just people who work on pulsars. Yeah, definitely. Just if you're interested in hearing from anybody in the group who may be working on any type of specific type of project. We've had people who work on Evolve Stars, work on planetary nebulae, who work on globular clusters. I work on nearby galaxies myself. We have people who work on the higher redshift galaxies, on supernovae, on protostars, even the sun. We cover just about everything here, except for planets. We don't do planets quite so much. Exoplanets. Exoplanets. Exoplanets, yes. Yep. Planets in the solar system, not so much. No. Although the Earth Sciences Department here does. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, we can always go... And we have had an interview with them in the past, so we can reach out if there's demand. Yes, so we can always go over to Earth Sciences. Well, thanks for that feedback. And if anybody else would like to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can do so on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. At Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Thomas Torres for the interview. The editors were Parvin Mansour, Claire Brotherton, Tom Hiller, Tom Scragg, and Francesca Pierce. The producer was Charlie Walker. Until next time... John.